Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And I'm really excited to announce that it's easier than ever to find us and join our community and perhaps support us. And that's on politicsandreligion.us. The A-N-D is spelled out politicsandreligion.us. Check it out. Consider becoming one of our patrons. That'll really help us continue to have conversations like the one we're having today. Today's guest is Josh Lewis. Josh is the founder of the Saving Elephants blog and host of the Saving Elephants podcast, a platform devoted to saving the Republican Party as it faces the twin threats of its demagoguery from within and looming extinction at the hands of demographic trends from without. Through all his work, One can tell immediately that, as he says, Josh is passionate about conservatism surviving and thriving in the 21st century. Josh Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? Corey, it's great to be here. I am so thrilled to be among your lineup of, I guess, guests. And you say in the introduction, I definitely lean more towards the um, regular folks just like myself into that (laughs) spectrum. So it's quite exciting I get to be here with the likes of the uh, wonderful guests you've had on before. Oh, man. You know, it's cool. And and you've probably experienced this, too, is that when you get to know people who you've admired from afar, whether you listen to their radio program or read their books or, you know, read their columns or, you know, just follow their political career. Once you get to talking to them in a in a form like this, it's a little bit more relaxed and you can breathe a little bit. They're regular folks like us, too. So. Uh, that's encouraging. So I, I, I do have to ask you, I told you I wouldn't ask you a question like this, but now that I see, is that a piano in the background? It is. So are you, do you play? I do. I, I play, um, well, I play all kinds of genres, but I grew up playing the very old fashioned quartet, Southern gospel, ragtimey style that's mostly died out now among, among other genres. But yes, I, I enjoy kind of the, the, uh, I was born way too, uh, way too late in in the century. I, I I have a heart that was probably born in the 1940s. Oh man! So do you pull out the hymnal and just follow the chord progression and just know how to crank it out? Uh, you know, playing some of that old time religion kind of a thing. I can, I can. I read music or or play by ear. Either one, whichever suits my fancy. The the uh, church I grew up in, any member of the congregation could start a song you may have never heard of and start in any key. Hmm. Uh, ones in which you didn't necessarily prefer to play in. So you had to really be on your toes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about, uh, so I'm a huge fan of jazz, jazz pianists. Monk in particular is definitely one of my favorites. Are you a jazz fan as well? I I am a, I, I deeply respect jazz. I kind of came to it a little bit later in life. So I'm by no means a jazz pianist. I wouldn't ever claim to be. Uh, hopefully someday I can I can tackle that very difficult genre, but it, it's it's music I very much enjoy, but I I can't claim any <laughs> any expertise in it. 
one of my life's dreams is to, I used to play quite a bit of piano and one of my life's dreams is to get, just get back to playing my scales, you know, so that I could, I could read music a little bit more fluently and then improvise within whatever, whatever tune we're playing, you know, so someday, uh, you know, but right now my passion is doing this podcast. So there's only so much time in a day to do your, your passion stuff. So you're Oklahoma. Did you grow up in Oklahoma or? I did. Yeah. I'm just a couple of miles from the hospital I was born in. I, I left uh, not too far from here, around Branson, Missouri. I went to College of the Ozarks okay. uh, in the Ozark region, Missouri. Um, but for th- essentially my entire life and my entire professional life, I've been here in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And then one of the things I saw, you mentioned College of the Ozarks. You were president of the College of College Republicans there. How young were you when you began to think about politics and start to shape your conservative views? You know, I, I often feel like I have to say this apologetically, but I owe a debt of gratitude to Rush Limbaugh for introducing me and interesting me in politics. Gosh, I want to say I was early teen years. And to be completely honest, it my my political worldview was essentially Democrat bad, Republican good mm. for many years. I remember the night that Bill Clinton was elected, my dad, and this could have been a complete coincidence, but my dad got out the uh, coins and was counting coins and rolling them. And I just kind of, I had, there was this gloom in the house of the Democrats <laughs> now elected, you know, we had had Reagan and Bush and now we're going to be having to pinch the pennies around here. And and so my parents were, to be honest with you, my parents really weren't all that politically engaged. They were, they were very conservative in their outlook. They weren't necessarily all that involved in politics. I was kind of the oddball in the family that I just really began gravitating toward it. I wasn't ever interested in sports, and I almost wonder if that was sort of an outlet for me other than sports. And uh, and, and that, that sort of grew and grew. When I was at College of the Ozarks, I really wanted to major in political science, and I am in retrospect very grateful that they closed that program the semester I got there because I, I think I recognized that I had a lot of the passions that youth have, but not necessarily hadn't let my intellect or or my my calmer, say, reflective muscle catch up with that. Mm. And so I, I recognize that today I probably would have been part of the problem I now see had I just went one hundred and you know one hundred percent that direction, just gung ho pursuing a career in politics. Say I instead became a CPA, uh, something that pays the bills a little bit better. Yeah. So, so you mentioned a couple things that caught my attention. One is, well, one is Rush Limbaugh. It's, it's funny you said that because Matt Lewis was on a few weeks ago and he said similar thing uh, that, you know, when, when Rush Limbaugh first came on the radio, I think in the late 80s, it, he started becoming a huge fan of Rush, but also of conservative principles. It's funny, you know, when I, I remember listening to him in the early 90s and it always sounded the same. You know, it always sounded something along the lines of, you know, I was right. Clinton is stupid by my book, <laughs> you know, something along those lines. Um, so I, I never I never quite got it. But I guess if you listened to it a, a lot more, you, you would start to absorb some of the thinking behind that. And in particular, you uh, the, the work that I've seen at, at least going back to 2016, because um, I, I wasn't able to pull up any essays pre-2016, but at least going back to 2016, it's clear that you're a very well-read, uh, erudite thinker uh, in terms of conservative principles. When did you, so number one, when did you start reading the likes of Burke and and 
uh, William F. Buckley and Thomas Sowell. And the other thing that you said that maybe we'll get to in a second, but I want to make sure that I ask you about, you mentioned the problem, part of the problem. So I want to mm-hmm. make sure, I, I want to ask you about that as well. Sure. No, those are great questions. And I don't know that I necessarily have a, a uh, you know, there wasn't a, a come to Jesus moment necessarily, in which I dove into conservatism as an intellectual pursuit, as opposed to say sort of the Republican party as a political interest. Both of those things get wed together so much that it's hard to untangle them sometimes. I began to slowly build in this, say. Russell Kirk, I had heard the name before. William F. Buckley, I'd certainly heard of him before. I really didn't know who these guys were. I just knew that they were the good guys, if you, if you will. You refer to yourself on a recent interview as a, a Kirkian conservative. And I'm like, damn yes. it, I got to go read Kirk now. <laughs> <laughs> and Kirk is admittedly, and I, I try to warn in my podcasts, some of these people, you know, Leo Strauss, I'm not a Straussian conservative, but Leo Strauss, Edmund Burke, they're tough to read. I mean, they are hard to read. And partially because they wrote so long ago and they weren't trying to write to a general audience. Kirk isn't too terribly bad. William F. Buckley isn't. And I often say Thomas Sowell's about the easiest. But the guy's just brilliant. Very, very brilliant, but also writes for a, a general audience. Um, Sowell, in a, in a certain sense, I would say it was, weirdly, it was a quasi-religious path that got me here in, in uh, reading C.S. Lewis in college. Okay. I knew there was another name, but so I guess the short answer to your question is very late in life. It was, it was when I was in college, I was always kind of interested in these basic ideas, but I I never really was exposed to them. Part of that was because the family I grew up in, as I mentioned, they weren't really politically involved. They weren't opposed to this stuff. They just, I wasn't exposed to it like some other people are. And I began slowly to to become exposed to some of these CS Lewis. When I read specifically his book, the great divorce, it was almost a conversion type experience. Experience. And I don't mean by that I turned to Christianity. I, at that time, I was already professing faith in Christ. But rather, I, I felt like I had this moment where I felt like I now understand what it means to love God with my mind. That there's this world out here that I was previously unaccustomed to, that I that I never even thought about asking these questions before, let alone pursuing answers to them. And obvious, C.S. Lewis is not, I, I would say, one of the, the great intellectuals of the conservative movement. I don't, I don't think it would be fair to label him as such. But that was kind of my first introduction in, in college of trying to pursue this brilliant thinkers who had things to say worth knowing. Why not go out and read what they have to say? You know, I, I find this stuff fascinating. And you, you had kind of mentioned in 2016, I, you know, Thomas Sowell was someone I got turned on to in college also. But a lot of these other thinkers, Kirk and Burke and Buckley and Strauss and uh, Roger Scruton and uh, Michael Oakeshott and so many others, it really wasn't until, oddly enough, the 2016 election, when, and uh, we may talk about this, yeah. where, where it it was a sort of like, where is the Republican Party going? When when I began to have what was mostly unfruitful conversations, respectful but unfruitful conversations on social media with friends and family, and it occurred to me when they say conservative, that's not really what I mean. So what do I mean when I say conservative? Do I actually know what this means? And when I started to research this stuff, I say this often on my podcast, I really felt cheated. I was like, why on earth have I been identified a Republican conservative for as long back as my intellectual memory goes? And I've never encountered these writings. Like, this is amazing stuff. These guys are brilliant. Why are we not talking about this more? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that you bring that up. Let me back up for a second here. So you you point out a really interesting fact, 
And that that is that many folks, perhaps some who are listening, who think of conservatism as as what you might see on Fox News or hear snippets from a, a now prominent guy like Dan Bongino. But your conservatism is rooted in these great thinkers that we're talking about. Can, can so. Can you give us an overview of the kinds of principles that form the basis of your, I, I would say, the real conservative political philosophy? I was afraid you were going to ask me the question that is, <laughs> that uh, what is conservatism? Because I have no idea. And, and by which I mean, I don't have thoughts that could be helpful, but rather, if you really dig into it, it is nearly impossible to truly define what is conservatism. But as, but as far as like general principles, is that what you're asking about yeah. what, what I would, well, I, I think Roger Scruton summarized it best. He, he was a British philosopher who unfortunately died last year and in saying that the conservative sentiment is in a sense, it's, it's an idea that all reasonable people recognize left, right, right down the center, which is that good things that we have and enjoy are easily destroyed, but not easily created. And that's similar to a Russell Kirk idea, which is that conservatism starts not as an ideology, but as an impulse. Now, it has to go beyond that. If it's nothing more than an impulse, then conservatism is nothing more than the get off my lawn mentality, right? The kids these days are the problems. Just nothing should ever change. But it starts with this sort of impulse of trusting the devil you know to the devil you don't know. It does not mean that a conservative is always against innovation and change, but it's na our natural inclination is a re reverence or respect for tradition and the past, as opposed to trying to simply break free of those things. And this gets really messy and really complicated in a hurry because there's all sorts of other things that get attached to it. In fact, one of the, um, one of my, uh, Yuval Levin, one of the, I think the most brilliant conservative thinkers alive today, depicts this battle between the beginnings of the left and the right as, as they were between um, some of the teachings of Edmund Burke and uh, Thomas Paine. And he kind of, and there's a lot to that argument, but one of those aspects that maybe is kind of helpful to think of is that Burke's conservatism was trying to work with the world as it was, that we enter this world not with a completely blank slate and we don't get to make it as we want it, but it turns out there are people here when we got here. And, there are, and we have an obligation, if you will, to the dead and to tradition. This is what G.K. Chesterton referred to as the democracy of the dead. That's what a tradition is, right? Yeah. yeah. So they're not here anymore, but they get to vote through reverence to the tradition. Whereas Paine argued that, no, 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 that the tradition's the problem. The, the institutions right. are the problem. We need to break free from these things. We need to liberate the individual. And this, is, and this is kind of a warring idea sometimes within conservatism too, because there are aspects of, I would say, radical libertarianism of the individual is supreme and 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 is a and pursues a good virtue of liberty, but also a notion that you have to anchor liberty to order, because liberty, detached from order, eventually becomes tyranny. Yeah, what we saw interesting that you bring up pain because was it didn't pain ultimately support the French Revolution, which succumbed to complete disorder, like. The, the Jacobins, it, that like one after the other, after the other, like you weren't pure enough in your pursuit of liberty. So we're going to cut off your head. <laughs> you know, you actually put it on your on the blog. Uh, I love the summary that you start with. Conservatism is applying the wisdom of the past, to the challenges of today. Conservatism is conserving the things that ma most matter. 
Conservatism is an attitude of gratitude, but there's a humility that you immediately introduce here. Mm. But how do we know what wisdom to apply? How do we recognize what matters most? What should we be grateful for? These are precisely the questions conservative thinkers have wrestled with from ancient times through today. And exploring what they have to teach us is what Saving Elephants is all about. It's really helpful to think through that prism. So do you have any answers? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have a lot of thoughts and, and I do try to be careful in Saving Elephants, though I, I have my own, say, policy prescriptions or candidates I would support or don't support or ideas I think are important. But I, I think what I want to highlight most of all is it's that conversation itself. And, and it's a mindset that weds itself to, you mentioned two words that are huge in conservative thinking. And I think in any vibrant society, you have to have gratitude and humility. I think without those virtues, you cannot have a thriving society. And it's conservatism in a, is in a sense that conversation taking place among us. If, if you start reading conservative thinkers, much like the American founding fathers, it turns out most of them did not agree with each other. Yeah. <laughs> but there were some, for the most part, some basic underlying, I, I would say, shared worldview. I, I don't want to call it principles necessarily, but maybe for lack of a better word, I'll call it principles. And what I would say is necessary for a, a conservatism in a broad sense is that sort of sense of gratitude and humility. And this is you know, kind of going back to a previous question. If you measure that against what is often attributed to, you know, people will say that the um, people will often attribute the far right as being ultra conservative, but in fact, it's it's a break from conservatism because it lacks a sort of gratitude, and it lacks that sort of humility. It believes itself to understand what needs to happen, and it seeks to tear down things and put something new in its place. Which is you were talking earlier, that is the French. I mean, we even have individuals representing on the right today that are even pro-French revolution. Yeah. Because it turns out they're starting to recognize, wait a minute, maybe these guys are similar to what we're saying. And, and that, that should be a telltale sign that they're straying from the path of conservatism. Right, right. You point out in, in one series that you did on the blog that liberalism is not necessarily the opposite of conservatism. In fact, radicalism is probably a more direct opposite to it. I mean, it's it's a good point that you make, uh, but can you just going back to that series of of um, blog posts that you did, uh, conservative how do conservatives differ from from liberals? Can you help us understand some of those differences? I, I hope so. And and one of the things that I try to be careful of is in maybe I should say this as a disclaimer up front. When I do a blog series like that, in which I'm trying to say here's how a conservative can contrast with a liberal, say. I recognize that I want to be careful I'm not presenting myself as the authority on what a conservative is, because the reality is, if you were to ask, say, Wilmore Kendall, and these are guys that died, Wilmore Kendall, you know, what his stance there is, he was very decidedly anti-liberal. If you were to ask, you know, some of the um, David French or maybe even Jonah Goldberg today, I don't know that it would be fair to say they're liberal, but they're definitely classical liberal. And so there, there's this is a complicated issue within it, but in direct answer to your question, um, conservatism, as I described, is is a is a worldview. It's a it's a, an impulse. It's not necessarily an ideology. It doesn't have a formula for here is how we ought to behave. Liberalism is a little different. It does, in fact, have that. Whether we're talking about progressive liberalism or Lockean liberalism or classical liberalism or it's it's sort of a 
one size fits all. Here is the appropriate regime. Here is how we ought to live. Now, what does a conservative do with that? Because the weird thing is here in the United States, we are in some sense trying to conserve a liberal regime, right? There, there's few statements I can think of more liberal than we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. A lot of people have pointed out that's pretty darn similar to John Locke's life, liberty, and property. That's a pretty liberal statement. The problem is you get to this within conservatism, then, then here comes this debate. Okay, well, what gives us these liberties? Is it the fact we wrote them down? Or is it that we live in a culture that enforces these basic ideas. And this to me is where conservatism comes in because my argument against liberalism, in effect, and there's conservatives have a lot of things to say against liberalism, but among them is liberalism doesn't sustain itself. It's a very wonderful idea, but the idea can't precede liberty. You have to have the sort of building blocks within society that give you the necessary conditions for liberty to exist and then you can introduce liberalism. It doesn't work the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. You've pointed out, and I think Jonah Goldberg has pointed this out, that this this um, form of democracy is is not natural. <laughs> you know? No, it's not. And, and, and the other thing I would say there, too, is to a degree, I think it also, I think a conservative can differ on their view of liberalism depending on time and place. I think we live in a precarious moment in which there are growing radical voices on the left and the right that are, and I don't mean this as a pejorative, but would properly be defined as illiberal. In mm -hmm. other words, they want to tear apart the liberal structures we have and erect in its place something else. And so I think there is maybe a greater need for a conservative to assert liberal values today than maybe there would have been in the past if that makes sense. In other words, there was a sense in which we we recognize the value in the structure itself. Yeah. And that structure is in danger. And therefore, as a conservative trying to preserve things, that's what I'm trying to defend. No, it makes sense. Um, it, it does make sense. The illiberal, the illiberalism that's being expressed, I I, I want to eschew the whole left-right thing. It, it's just not sufficient to describe Diff the different parties, um, the, the individuals within those parties, because there is this illiberal tendency that's showing up in people who are stars of the Republican Party or what's now known as the conservative movement, even though we're talking about real conservative thinking, which differs from that. There's others uh, who, who you would identify with on the left that also have these illiberal impulses, you know, whether it's deplatforming people who say things that you don't agree with. Uh, we saw it with Chappelle a few months ago. We saw it with Rogan and Whoopi Goldberg here more recently. Um, or, or the illiberal tendency to basically boot out, you know, Kinzinger and, and Cheney, uh, representatives Kinzinger and Cheney, uh, merely because they want to be a part of investigating. They're, they're as conservative as, as they come. And yet because they want to investigate the insurrection and be a part of that committee. They're being ostracized and canceled, if you will, by their own party. So there are these illiberal tendencies. But I do want to go back to something you said earlier. Uh, you, you described uh, the you sort of 
simply put, you said um, Democrats bad, you know, and that was the sort of driving political philosophy. My observation is that the problem is is rooted in a metastasization of that. In other words, I was reading. Um, I went on this little rabbit trail. One of your one of your essays. Uh, you do this. Uh, you do this often, where you'll interact with um, someone who's written something or said something, and you've done blog posts where you interact with them. So a couple of those folks, I, I looked up and saw what they were up to, and it just reminded me that they're they're in a place where everything is defined by. Democrats bad, the left bad, liberals bad. So everything, everything else that doesn't make sense to sort of an objective outside observer makes perfect sense if their entire worldview is shaped by we're at war, they're the bad guys. Anybody outside of this particular orthodox set of thinking are the bad guys and they need to be fought. So I'm wondering if you would define, as we talked about before, the problem the same way or is the problem something else in your view? And, and just so I'm clear, you're, you're asking if, if I would define the problem as you just described it, or if I would define it using other words, is that what you were asking me? Well, when you were referring to the problem, is that is that at least a symptom of the larger problem that you're referring to, what I just described? Yeah, I'm, I'm getting um, overwhelmed by the phrase of the problem. <laughs> maybe um, maybe I'm holding you to it. I'm asking you to, to <laughs> give us the prescription of what, what diagnose the whole thing and give us the prescription, right? You know, in 30 words or less. <laughs> I'm, I'm part of a, I'm part of it. And it's actually a closed group. A, a progressive friend of mine reached out. I'll just say this in way of introduction. Um, and we formed a, a, a small group of individuals. It's called civil discourse. And we just discuss books about essentially the polarization problem in the United States. And it seems like in all of our conversations, I've, I've, we can boil down most of them to a few basic points, which is, are we polarized? Yes. Is that a problem? Yes. What do we do about it? We really don't know. And we have some basic ideas, but we don't necessarily know where to go from here. Part of what I'm thinking is, is when you say that, I, I mentioned the name Wilmore Kendall earlier. He was a he was a conservative thinker. That quite a character, too. He was quite a character. Influenced William F. Buckley. I think in a lot of ways his influence looms large over, I won't even say conservatism, but the right, broadly speaking today, even though most people have never heard of this guy. I don't always agree with him. He he had a much, he, I had a guest on it, and you may have heard this episode that described him as a populist, depending on how we're defining that term. It's yeah. real complicated in a hurry. I don't know if I necessarily agree, but assuming he was a populist, he was about the healthiest version of a populist you can come up with. He very much did describe this as a war. He was one of the first conservative intellectual thinkers, if you will, that spent a lot of his energy specifically pointing to the left and liberals using the L word, the very thing that I said conservatism today is trying to defend, as the enemy, in effect. And the way it was often couched back then, this would be like the 1940s, 50s, 60s, is that the problem with liberalism was that it was insufficient, specifically insufficient to deal with communism. And so they weren't depicting liberals as, you know, baby killers. They were depicting liberals as standing in the way of the true threat, the global communist, if you will. A lot of this language still exists on the right today. Obviously, it does on the left, too. I'm not as well-versed in the left, so maybe I'll just stick with the right for now. This language is still there. 
And I will admit I am somewhat sympathetic to it because there is a sense in which there is a culture war. There is a sense in which there is a red state versus blue state. There is a sense in which there is a, a, a healthy version of it, we might even say, a lively argument about what the heck does it actually mean to be an American? What is America all about? And there are two very loud voices in that debate on the left and the right. And I don't know how we'll ever or if we could ever reconcile those two. So that is real. I don't ever want to diminish the fact that that exists. And there are bad actors on both the left and the right, right? And we know that and we see that all the time, right? Individuals genuinely trying to uh, behave in a demagogic or or behave in bad faith. All of that being said, I think there's also a natural human tendency, as you were talking earlier, Joan Goldberg says what we're doing isn't natural, a natural human tendency to boil all of our politics down to an extraordinarily complex us versus them. And that's dangerous when you're talking about a free society. It's probably dangerous in any society, but particularly in a society like ours, because it, as we have seen year after year after year, it's getting worse and we don't seem to know how to stop it. And people are even starting to talk now about, you know, genuine talk about, is there going to be a secession in the United States? Is there going to be further violence? I don't think that many people think there's going to be a civil war, say, but you don't have to project it out too far before you you can see bad things or or awaiting us down the down the road, and so I, and I'm not trying to strike a balance necessarily here, but I sort of am because I I don't. I guess on the one hand, I want conservatism to triumph over radical voices on the left that seek to transform the United States into something it never was and never was intended to be, but I want to do so in a manner that preserves the institutions, recognizing they're imperfect and can sometimes be used against us. Because I think that's the only way to ensure the United States does continue to be the sort of nation it was always intended to be. You you have said that a few times, I've heard you say a few times that a healthy democracy needs healthy, healthy liberalism or healthy progressivism in dialogue with healthy conservatism. So what, what, what would a healthy liberalism or healthy progressivism look like in order to be a good collaborator with those who are real conservatives, you know, robust thinking conservatives? Yeah, and, and, that's, and that obviously gets complicated in a hurry because I'm not trying to say that I just happen to be conservative, but I find progressivism just as persuasive or something like that. I think progressives are wrong as, as I understand progressives to express themselves. What I, I suppose what I mean, first of all, by a healthier version is one in which all of the conversations and all the deliberative decisions are taking place within a liberal framework. One in which we don't try to burn the capital to the ground if our guy doesn't get elected or we claim the election stolen. One in which we congratulate the winner. You know, we, we, tend to our wombs, and then we try to present a better argument next time. Um, Now, some of that does presume the other side, or both sides, rather, are arguing in good faith and behaving in good faith. But if I broaden it out even more, maybe we I'll step away from, say, like policy debates. What I mean by a healthier version of the left and the right, or a healthier version of progressivism and conservatism, is what we don't want is a conservatism that is so enamored with tradition, or a misunderstanding of tradition, that it seeks to either never change or 
change the clock back to some imaginary past. And this is where, if conservatism's chief aim in concern is gratitude, the progressive's chief aim and concern is, is justice and saying, it turns out not everything in our life is good. There are individuals who are oppressed. There are systemic things that are wrong. Now, I think they often get the, I, I think they, the basis of their arguments are, are often skewed, looking to sort of systemic problems rather than individual or looking to society being the issue rather than our sin nature. But I think that desire to say, it turns out we ought not to be satisfied with everything, and we have screwed up a lot of things in the past, and let's get it right this time, is a very healthy attitude, providing it's tempered by a conservative impulse to not destroy things of the past. Yeah, yeah. There's this story of, you know, if you've come across a wall on a walk, if you're walking in a field or in the forest and the wall is there and you're trying to do something, you know, you might say, well, you know, this is getting in the way of our walk and, you know, let's let's take down the wall. But a conservative might say, let's understand why that wall is there in the first place before we start yeah. taking it down. I didn't tell the story. Uh, great. But I've heard it told better. But that's um, that's the conservative impulse is like, why, why is it there before we Hey, hold on? Wait. Oh, so I, I did want to ask you, you've been involved in politics in different ways. It sounds like your whole adult life. At one point, you were treasurer of the Tulsa County Republican Party. But in 2016, you stepped down from that post. So tell me about that period when I don't know if these if that decision began to occur to you as early as 2015, uh, when the um, Republican debate started happening, or if it was 2016, but tell me about that period and, and how you ultimately came to the decision to step down. Yeah, and I should probably say in way of introduction, my decision to step down, this this wasn't um, this did not cost me personally all that much, but that's all, that's only I wasn't paid for this position. It was completely voluntary, so I enjoyed it. But at the same while, it was like, oh, oh, well, I don't have to do this anymore. It wasn't like that was some grand sacrifice on my part, but it was chiefly done out of a concern for, in direct answer to your question, who the party nominated, that being Donald Trump. I still, you know, and, and it's weird, it's kind of hard for us to put our brains back in that moment of 2016, because when he received the nomination, the Republican Party was very different. Lindsey Graham was very different. <laughs> he turned out to be just... Sometimes, in some cases, even months later. And so there wasn't this sense that I've turned my back on the Republican Party. Even today, I don't necessarily feel that way. But there was almost a sense of, what the heck did we just do? We, yeah. We've nominated this guy that has badmouthed every other Republican. And, and even those that were supportive of him were kind of like, what, what, what did we just do? They were excited, but it, it was a weird feeling. And, and so my, my stepping down was less of a repudiation of the party, say, and, and more... I could not, he, he was such an odious candidate that I felt like not only can I not vote for him, and, and just to be clear, I didn't vote for Hillary Clinton. I know some people did. I didn't vote for a third party because here in, in the state of Oklahoma, we have the most restrictive, uh, one of the most restrictive ballots in the country as to who can be on the ballot. So I was pretty much, you know, left it. Well, I guess we'll keep this blank. But it was it was chiefly that. It, it was a concern because of the way the debate had gone because of my recognition of who this individual was, the lack of character he had, um, the way he behaved himself. I was like, I can't be a part of this. And, and it transcended policy. I, I was not okay with a lot of his policy prescriptions. 
But there were a lot of Republican nominees I wasn't particularly happy about their policy prescriptions, and I could have still saw myself voting for him. He simply lacked the character that I think he he never, you know, as Jonah Goldberg often says, the Donald Trump we saw on January the 6th is who this guy was. He even said in the 2016 debate he was going to keep us in suspense whether or not he would concede the race if essentially he was told he lost. Yeah. So it came down to, as it became more clear that uh, Trump was going to be the nominee, that you, you simply couldn't support it and couldn't support, uh, didn't, couldn't in good conscience uh, be an active member of or, or have a role in that in the, the Republican Party in that regard. Was this, and, and it's been a hard five, six years. I mean, mm-hmm. for somebody who's, who's a real conservative to see, you know, the continued disintegration of the Republican Party uh, to, to become essentially a, a party that that's a cult of personality, I, I think it's fair to say. So did you start doing Saving Elephants back then or did you start doing it prior to that? It was essentially around that same time period. It was shortly after the, I'll have to go back and check. I, I think it began to be pieced together during the, the run-up of that 2016 election. And as I said, it was it started off sort of a social media comments in which I was trying to define conservatism. Yeah, I, w- I was fairly taken aback by the direction my party had gone. And it was interesting because I had always recognized that the Trumpy elements of the Republican Party were there. I had just always presumed they were a very minority voice. And I was, you know, and as I said earlier, I was never particularly happy with the majority of Republican nominees and and most Republican candidates, but I was satisfied with them, if you will, to continue to, um, for the most part, support them above, uh, beyond usually the Democrat or whatever other opponent they had. Here's where I think I'm getting a little off. You had said, you are correct. It has been an extraordinarily discouraging five or six years for those who would hold a conservative viewpoint, as I'm defining it. But one of the things that has given me courage, or at least helped me not succumb to uh, despair <laughs> in, in, this, in, in this season, is when you look at the actual history of conservatism in the United States, at least as we understand it today, as modern conservatism, it is not only very recent— it didn't spring up until around the 1950s and took force throughout the 60s and 70s and really didn't become ascendant until the 80s and 90s. But it was often in the minority and it was often fraught with peril and a lot of voices in, inside that, you know, the, uh, I had a podcast guest on once that kind of pointed me to an interesting factoid that during the 50s and 60s, there were really radical voices on the right then also. Most of what we know of today is the John Birch Society, but there were other pre, say, like Rush Limbaugh type voices in radio. This is always there. It's always been there. And it was this weird conglomeration of things that happened in the 1980s throughout the 90s that allowed this to even be ascendant at all. And I I think that, and this is the same with the left too, losing is the default position in politics. It's a hard climb. And and I think it's important, especially if a I'll still call myself younger. I'm a millennial <laughs> conservative myself to say, sometimes you spend your entire life just working so that the next generation can benefit from those labors. And I, I don't mean that to sound like sacrificial or hopeless, but if you put it in a historical context, it's not just a given that this conservatism is always ascendant. In fact, it's usually not. And it usually takes a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and sometimes several generations 
before that can happen again. Right, right. You know, I think I I mentioned this before that I do think there's a central element to what ails us as a culture. And I can't help but get the voices of people like Mark Levin or Hannity, uh, in particular on his radio program, out of my head. And if you tune into the first 15 minutes of their show, almost every day, they're almost like very uh, enthusiastic, uh, dynamic teachers who, who's teaching their audience about the left. The left wants you to fill in the blank. In recent days, I literally heard, I forget which one it was, the left wants you to die. <laughs> you know, I mean, and I'm sure that gets a lot of clicks. They, they were talking about, um, that, or maybe the way he put it was, the left is happy that you're dying, it, you know, or so, something along those lines. It had to do with uh, people who are resistant to getting the vaccine. And, you know, the left is celebrating and dancing on people's graves and stuff like that. But it is, it is an entire industry I find that they've been built up on overly generalizing who they see as their political, not just adversary or, you know, but, or we used to think of them as the loyal opposition, but political enemies, you know, Mm -hmm. so overly generalizing, mischaracterizing and demonizing. And this is, this has replaced actual political, philosophical thought that undergirds how one might arrive at a position, whether it's on a politician to vote for, a leader to vote for, or a, uh, a policy to, to support. So I, I think that is, that in my mind, that's the problem. So I bring this up because I, it's easy to get discouraged. To your point, it is easy to fall into despair I decided that I can't change the whole thing. I can't make, you know, the Patriot channel on, on um, XM radio go away. I can't put them out of business. I can't even make a dent, let alone a, a ripple. But what I can do is I can have a conversation with my neighbor. I can have a conversation with somebody I graduated high school with that maybe disagrees with me on stuff. I can have conversations like these, you know, and, 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 I, and if I'm having a conversation, I I don't even necessarily go into them thinking that I'm going to change somebody's mind. I don't know what that looks like. I haven't mm-hmm. been very good at it. But I think that maybe I can have 1% of persuasion. I think that maybe I, it, not changing their mind, but maybe they think a little bit differently about one thing that we discuss, you know, and uh, I, I, that seems to be a more fruitful endeavor to me. You know, so the frustration might be that we want to wake up and snap our fingers and make the whole, you know, uh, talking heads radio uh, go away just just like that. And it just doesn't work that way. I think that the the answer is in doing exactly what we're doing. You know, I'm sure there are any number of things that if we went down the list, we'd probably vote for different people. There's probably a lot that we vote similarly on and, and, and positions that we vote uh, similarly on, but a lot where we defer. But having conversations like this or, or actively seeking out people who do defer from me, uh, that, that's the work, man. That's, I think that's what's going to help redeem our culture. And yeah, you're right. It's not going to be overnight, but maybe to your point, if we can think of it as something that we're doing bit by bit, step by step for the next generation, so that we remember to have how to have 
better conversations so that maybe we can get some millennial or or Gen Z version of, of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan doing good work together, you know, still being loyal opposition, <laughs> but but maybe actually getting some good or or later on the, the Clinton and um, Speaker uh, Gingrich, you know, actually got some good work to, done together. Couldn't, you know, couldn't come from two different, more different places politically <laughs> at that time. But uh, their their um, their moral character may have been pretty similar, but their politics <laughs> was very different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I got to ask you. So I, I um, we mentioned that you have so many great guests on your program. It must be such a thrill to talk to some of those conservative heroes, the Uvala Levins and the Ross Douthats. Do you get nervous? Is it or, or is it just kind of chill? You're, you're having conversations <laughs> with friends. It's interesting. I I, I guess I've I've gotten over a lot of my nervousness. I get more nervous when I do a solo podcast. I'm just talking to the microphone. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm paying more attention to what I'm saying. Yeah. I do occasionally. I will say this. What's interesting is on occasion, I will have on a guest that you and the audience have probably never heard of. Yeah. That turns out to be one of my best guests. The conversation just flows and the person's just brilliant and erudite and and it's not always the big names, although you are correct, you know, getting to talk to the David French or Jonah Goldberg or Ross Douthat or Yuval Levin. Yuval Levin's just on another level. He's, it's hard to, you could throw any question, I think you could throw any question you want to at him and he's going to give you an amazing answer. It's just like, wow, I, I never thought of it that way. I mean, he's, he's, I have the utmost respect for him and he has managed to not take off too many aspects of at least the intellectual right, which is quite an interesting feat. Um, but no, you're, you're, you're right. It, it is wonderful. Podcasting is a wonderful hobby and it, it does seem to produce at least, at least in this season, maybe it's because of COVID and certainly it's because if people want to get their book out, they're a little bit more willing to talk to just some smo with a microphone, you know, that <laughs> they, they don't know from Adam, but it, it, it gives you a platform where you can have that voice. And I do try to be where, not that I have a large audience or an influence, but I, I try to be wary of that, that I do want to not make light of it, that while I am enjoying it, it is also something, it's not just, it's a passion, but it's also a passion for a purpose that I am trying to communicate a winsome message. You know, kind of to your point when you were talking there, it's an interesting thought experiment, I think, if if the listener thinks, who formed me into the individual I am, both politically and religiously, I'll be willing to bet it wasn't because they saw some social media tweet calling someone a libtard. It was probably some, you know, great grandmother, you know, from 20 years prior that said that one thing. Slow accretion over time. I mean, that's really how we how we change. And probably the majority of people you and I will change for the better or worse. We're never going to meet. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it, it is step by step, bit by bit. And, and oftentimes change happens, it seems like, by osmosis. By getting around mm -hmm. it, you know, and I, I do think I do think that what you're doing on saving elephants is good work because there are folks who might be listening to some of the trash, uh, you know, the fast food version of conservative radio who will for an hour or so a week be listening to you. I think that's I think that's better for our society, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I do. I have to ask. I just want to stay on the podcast thing for a second. Yeah. How do you prepare for your guests? It depends on the guest. Yeah. I, I mean, it, if if it's, you know, I mentioned sometimes the only way to get a big name is if they wrote a book. Like, yeah. Well, I guess we could talk <laughs> about that. <laughs> yeah. 
there are other like Leo Strauss. I mentioned him earlier. I'm not a Straussian conservative. He's hard to read. I had a, a, a friend who was on who is a Straussian, West Coast Straussian. And so I just straight up asked him, like, what books could I read of Strauss? Like, I, how do I get introduced to this guy? I don't do that for every episode because I'm a somewhat slow reader. and I don't want to freaking read multiple books <laughs> just for a single episode. But sometimes I do. And and some of it's just you kind of develop a muscle of keeping your ears open, of hearing them on podcast. Uh, is that what you're t- kind of talking about? Of like, uh, look, I'm a CPA, so I put every problem in life I think could have probably be solved with a spreadsheet. So yeah. <laughs> I've got copious spreadsheets with questions and potential topics that I can pull from. I even at one point had Jonah Goldberg. I love his remnant podcast. I don't really keep up with it anymore, but I had listed every single episode he had every guest and what the topic was. And it came in really invaluable. Like, it's like, you know what? Yeah. Evolution. I think they talked about that and they found it on the, you know, I was able to go back and listen to some guests talk about it. So it's, it's sort of a, I don't know, build a bicycle while you're riding it approach, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, that's encouraging because I, I, I tend to do it the same way. Maybe not quite put it through an algorithmic spreadsheet, but <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I, if there's a book, I read the book. If there's a few books, I try to read as much of the body of work as possible. I seek people out on other interviews, uh, read their columns. Just, you know, if, if someone gives me the, privilege of spending an hour with me, uh, then I, I feel I owe it to them to come in. I, I'm almost nervous. I, I probably over-prepare because I'm nervous that like, I, I haven't gotten Jonah Goldberg yet, and, and but all, all these guys I hope to get at some point. But if, if they do bless me with an hour of their time, plus or minus, I, I don't want it to be a waste of their time Yeah, and, and come in with informed, uh, creative questions that'll spark some you know, that'll spark some thoughts in them and maybe some conversation that's edifying for others. So what's getting back to today's Republican Party, what vulnerabilities do you think left to the conservative movement prone in the first place to be taken over by a Trump or, or Trumpism more generally? Wow, that, that's a great question. And I, I, I think we could devote an entire hour to trying to dive through that. I mentioned this earlier that there were radical voices on the right that existed even in this era that I often lift up of the 1940s and 50s when these, or maybe not so much the 40s, the 50s and 60s when these voices are coming to the to the fore. There were also radical voices back there also. So this impulse has always existed. I and mean, if you go back and read the freaking Federalist Papers, Madison's talking about this, factions, right? Uh, how how uh, these populist movements can come up. The founders were very concerned about this. Demagoguery is embedded in human nature. Now, it is interestingly interwoven sometimes with the right, at least in this country, because ever since, well, really, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, there was a predominant liberal or left consensus in the United States. And so the right was the sort of from the outside looking in. They were shut out of the elite centers and still to a certain degree are. If you think about elite centers of universities and, and businesses and, and, uh, and, and law and certainly media. And so there's, I think, a natural mindset of a kind of Tea Party-esque movement that's always been present on the right. That can be really healthy. It can also be really dangerous, mm. just kind of depending on how it's, how it's formed. And, and I, 
you know, I think we can make too much or too little of this. Sometimes it depends on whether or not the individual that ceases that that seizes that movement is Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump or some of that. Are they using this for for what end? And so it is incumbent upon us, the little guys, obviously, to be looking for the right individual. You know, uh, uh, Milton Friedman said of Ronald Reagan, he was the only president in his lifetime that was not saying things people wanted to hear, but rather the people began to want to hear the things he had been saying for decades. Mm, that's interesting. And so I think there's a sense in which the people do need to be mature and looking for good leadership, but there's also a sense in which good leadership is necessary, and, the, and these two things can coalesce. That's a that's a high-level answer. Though. I mean, there's all sorts of nuts. Of, people have written books and volumes of books of how the heck do we end up with Trump? Yeah. Um, you know, some people have said, is it the natural progression of conservatism? I don't necessarily think that it is, but I think sometimes we conservatives – uh, to our peril, ignore those concerns and don't see them until they're a bit too late. I just don't, I don't see how one could identify Trump the individual as a conservative. If any, any earnest observation of his words and his actions and his character, I, I don't see any other conclusion to arrive at other than he has no moral moorings. Mm -hmm. He has no moral framework. His priorities are, it's been talked about ad infinitum, but you know, is, is his um, greed and his lust and his um, hunger for power. And uh, you know, all of these, the, the exact opposite of the fruit of the spirit, if you will. So, <laughs> so an individual like that, the, the idea that folks who are still saying, well, you know, his policies, his, you know, I was into his policies and if he just uh, kept his mouth shut, it, 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 we, he would have been identified as a great president. I don't think so. I think that when he arrived, when, when a policy was passed or an action was taken, it was almost arbitrary whether it aligned with conservative principles or mm -hmm. not because mm -hmm. of the character or lack thereof of, of that, um, of Donald Trump. But uh, I guess that's another conversation. I do want to talk more about the Republican Party, though. It seems like the party and the entire ecosystem of, of conservative media and politics has actually uh, become radicalized. It, it looks a lot like Trump and Trumpism, um, or it's flat out radicalized, like I said. Is there any way, I guess the work that you're doing on saving, uh, saving elephants, you would say that there's a way to redeem it. Or, or do real conservatives need to find another home or create another home the way the original Republicans did in the 1850s? You know, I'm sympathetic to a kind of all of the above strategy, if you will. I have sort of staked my claims in. I'm maintaining my a loose relationship with the Republican Party. I'm still registered Republican. I still hope that it would become a home of a, uh, a respectable conservatism again. If for no other reason, then I don't see that the Democratic Party is in any way moderating or becoming the party of the virtuous. Um, I'm not trying to equate the two necessarily, but I don't see a home there either. I could be completely wrong about this. So this is by no means a, this is not a prediction. This is, I'll just say, an observation. One of the things I recognize about the mouthpieces within the Republican Party or the larger Trump movement these days is a sense of desperation. And I think 
that is an indication of how weak it is at bottom. That it, it's very well. Let me put it this way: it's it's a mile wide and an inch deep. I don't know where you go with a cult of personality like Donald Trump when, and I wish him a long, healthy life when Donald Trump dies. I'm not <laughs> saying that there aren't others that fill his shoes. Don't don't get me wrong. I'm not saying these elements just disappear. But this isn't the conservatism I'm talking about. That you can go read freaking Edmund Burke from several centuries ago, and he's rooting his ideas in these timeless principles. Yeah. This is a cult of personality. And there is such a fear about this idea that if, you know, the 2% of the Republican Party like me don't get in line, that somehow that's going to be the doom of the republic. I just don't see that as a movement that lasts all that long. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that what replaces it is the sort of conservatism I prefer. Don't get me wrong. I think we we may be dealing with these populist demagogic um, uh, movements for the rest of our lives, likely. But I don't think it's nearly as powerful as what it now appears, because there are no roots. And I don't know how you can develop roots with a movement like this. So I don't know if you want to a- answer this question, but are there Democrats you've ever voted for or could imagine voting for? Well, yes, I have voted for a few Democrats. Actually, one of them, ironically, is the uh, when I ran for city auditor here in uh, the city of Tulsa, I ran against, um, at the time, the Republican incumbent um, because I had gotten some insider information and later confirmed that he was not performing his duties you know, to the uh, um, we'll we'll just say to the best of his abilities, put it mildly. And I didn't I didn't know this at the time, but as I began to run, a a third candidate jumped in the race, and she was a Democrat. Ended up voting for her just because I had gotten into the race to try to unseat this individual. He wasn't a terrible person. I just felt like it was sort of a dereliction of duty. There have been other Democrats I voted for at certainly at local levels, and so I'm not I'm by no means against the idea, but typically at national levels there aren't terribly many of them. Um, I, I did mention this before that I didn't vote for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. I know that's a controversial issue. I know some people say, you know, it's it's just, you know, it's committing a cardinal sin to not vote for someone on, on the ballot. Well, the way that I thought of it is if you're in Oklahoma, you can afford the luxury of, <laughs> you know, not voting on principle. You know, right. I'm in California. I can afford the luxury of that. But if I was in Arizona, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, I wonder, I wonder what kind of choice I would have made. Could I have voted for a third party in good conscience or would I have had to hold my nose? Now, listen, uh, I, I don't view Hillary Clinton in the same light that I viewed Biden. Uh, but if it was another, a can't, there are any number of other candidates on the Democratic side, I would have had a hard time voting for. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would have preferred somebody even more centrist. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I was, I was getting to understand where mayor pete was coming from and appreciating you know appreciating some of his views but but that's another question is there is it is it more possible for non-trumpian conservatives to find common cause at least common cause in the preservation of our democracy with a coalition of uh, i guess independents would would be uh, natural but centrist democrats or is it more realistic to find common cause with those who still find themselves in today's version of the Republican Party? That's a good question. And I I, I don't know if I have a good way of measuring that. Um, I know that David French, who admittedly has been excommunicated from certain conservative yeah. organizations <laughs> sometimes, made this statement. I think he's correct that 
oftentimes he has found he has more in common with liberal progressives, or, or to put it this way, liberal conservatives and liberal progressives, as I was defining liberalism earlier, have more in common than liberal conservatives and illiberal conservatives or liberal progressives and illiberal progressives. I don't know that that's always necessarily true. In other words, we might, the liberal and illiberal conservative may have the same end in mind, but our means are so radically different that we it turns out we have more in common with our counterparts on the left that are at least in agreement that we need to hold the liberal system together. I, I think the direct answer to your question is yes, there is absolutely room for, I don't know if you would call it a coalition or at least open conversations between more moderate voices on the left and right. And, and I really truly believe that that is the majority of America. I don't think these radical voices represent the majority most of the time. Um, but there doesn't seem to be an outlet for the majority to express its will at a national level. But that only goes so far because it turns out we do have different ends in mind sometimes. And so we need to be mindful of that. And I, I say that in terms of it is unfortunate that what we have also seen in this era of conservatism becoming radicalized into the sort of more Trumpy populist nationalist wave, we've also seen individuals who have become more left of center in their views. They, they've, they've shifted from a more conservative stance to, well, it turns out, I guess I don't believe these things. And I understand that it's difficult to, you know, it, it, you're on this precarious tippy balance. I'm not <laughs> saying it's easy. And I'm not saying that these individuals are always disingenuous when they make these moves, but I think there's natural pressures pushing us in these directions. So while, yes, there is room for coalitions, I think there's forces working against us that make those things difficult. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to circle up, circle back to something I, I alluded to before. The one piece I was talking about earlier on the blog, it was a response to something James Riley wrote in 2016 called Donald Trump and the Pharisees. So he was the one where I went back. Well, you really dug a long ways. There's <laughs> <laughs> fascinating stuff. I, I, I was reading at a certain point. I just kept reading for pleasure. It was and for edification. So you, you do. You've been doing a great job for a long time. So props to you, man. Well, thank you. But I, I was curious. I checked on what Riley has been writing in more recent months and years, and his views are sadly entirely predictable on everything from trump to vaccines to the insurrection i think in fact he was at the insurrection but i was wondering have you been able to persuade others who at one point were strong trump supporters well it may depend on what you mean by persuade i think it's probably fair to say I'm unaware of anyone that would be a Trump supporter like you're describing, who is now more a conservative like I'm describing. But I might, I can't think of instances in which I've been able to say temper some of their mm. views. Um, it is a very unfortunate reality we live in that an individual who was at the insurrection is very unlikely to be listening to a conversation like you and I are having. <laughs> And, and that's a problem. Yeah. And it really is a problem because it it's, we have a world in which we don't inhabit each other's spaces sometimes. Um, and I, I hate to, this is going to sound very uh, arrogant, but I, I think you'll know what I mean. I do occasionally listen to those voices, do those podcasts say, or read those blogs of individuals who would 
downplay the events of January 6th or say that it was okay or a proper expression. Or say it was legitimate political discourse. Right. <laughs> um, I don't listen to them believing that they have anything of value for me to hear other than maybe understanding why an individual would believe these things so that I can be cognizant or aware of how what I'm communicating, how it might be sounding to them. That's not the same as, you know, there are a lot of individuals I disagree with that I genuinely think their viewpoint is, while I disagree with it, is legitimate, and I could be edified by hearing what they have to say and why they disagree with me. Um, there are others that I don't feel that way, and it's, I, it's probably fair to say that they would say the same of us that they might listen to a conversation like this, but it wouldn't be to change their mind. I really think these things are going to have to start it, not with podcasts, but with personal relationships. Yeah. And it's unfortunate. I, I, I wish there was a shortcut. I, you know, we were talking earlier. I wished we could tweet these things and it, it works. Podcasts are a little better. Yeah. But even they're not going to get us there. Well, I don't think that's unfortunate at all. I think that, we are fooled if we think that these transactional exchanges is doing any work is 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 helping move things further in a in a healthier direction i do think it's the relational that helps yeah. those things because and and listen it's not just that i'm coming from a position where i'm right on all these things and uh, my job is to convince everyone to agree with me I understand that in the relational, as I am able to maybe persuade someone, say on the vaccine, uh, I, I have had progress because I, at, at a certain point here, okay, so here's here's an interesting thing. In California, they were trying to pass a law. It was a vaccine mandate. I, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I was opposed to that particular piece of legislation because it mandated a pretty long list of vaccines for kids to go to school. And it didn't have any options, even in terms of like, like now with the, the COVID vaccine, there's Johnson and Johnson and there's, you know, Moderna and there's options. So there was no informed consent even within those. So I was opposed to that particular piece of legislation because it didn't allow for any informed consent. And I was confused with being an anti-vaxxer. But um, I, along the way, I got to know people who really are anti-vaxxers. One in particular changed his mind, partly because we lost a friend to COVID when the, um, uh, early in the summer when Delta was, was first spiking. And that day, uh, when our buddy passed away, that day. Um, but this other fellow who ended up getting the vaccine, he and I had been talking about it for a while. And what I was going to say before is my ability to persuade him on anything necessitates me being open to the possibility of him persuading me. And while mm -hmm. he didn't persuade me to become an anti-vax, with, especially with regard to COVID, I understood where he was coming from on certain issues. You know, he, he didn't, at that stage, he didn't want to be a science experiment. He felt like if he was going too early, that he would be part of this grand experiment. And he didn't, he felt that the, he assessed the risks of going either way and and I kind of understood that. Sorry, I, I'm going off on a on a rabbit trail. I'm just no, that's that's fine. And I, as you were talking there, you know, it, when I said earlier that I don't think podcasts are going to get us there. Obviously, they're helpful and they're more helpful than you know screaming on social media. 
One of the reasons I don't think it's going to get us there is because the kind of conversation necessary on a podcast isn't, by virtue of the conversation, it's not going to reach that person. What I mean by that is uh, on January 6th, we keep going back to that in the insurrection, I knew someone, not very well, but I knew someone who was there. It was actually posting to social media live during the event, showing pictures of, you know, there being um, of the law enforcement. And the, the, I don't think he ever made it inside the Capitol, but he was gung-ho about it. And we got into an exchange on Facebook. And I think most people who know me or see me interact on social media would probably describe me as not your typical, I don't scream at people, I don't call them names, I don't denounce them. But the kind of conversation I was having with this individual on Facebook, while respectful, was not trying to persuade him that he was wrong. What I was trying to do, rather, was create a scenario in which anyone else seeing this conversation mm. could witness the exchange between us. Right. And I think that's what you and I often do. I think that's most of what we're doing when we're having podcasts. We're not necessarily talking to that guy at the insurrection. We're talking to what we presume to be reasonable individuals that they may disagree with us about what happened to the insurrection, but it's like, you know what? I never thought about it that way. Right. If I was actually talking to someone at the insurrection, I'd have a very different conversation with them. I would have to because I'd have to meet them at their level. And what you said is key, and, and it's, it's hard to do, and I'm not saying I'm all that good at it. I think humans, we naturally can smell a rat if the other person doesn't respect us. Yeah. I have to respect that person enough, even if I think they're – you know, engaged in insurrection, I have to be able to respect them as an individual enough to ever hope to persuade them to my side, if you will. Right, right. It's interesting you bring that up. Uh, First of all, I do want to say that maybe I'm a little bit more hopeful about the nature of podcasts, specifically because the, the medium lends itself to these types of conversations. Right. You know, it, it's not the seven second soundbite that we're going after you know, one of, if not the most popular podcast in the world goes often two and a half, three hours. So I, I really appreciate that. And 11 million people are listening to every episode. So I really, appreciate. I'm excited about this medium. I, I love it. I, I love these types of conversations, but to, to your point that you just made, I had yeah, yeah, getting... to be clear. I'm not anti-podcast. <laughs> Being in an opposition if I were. You're doing really well, by the way. And I think you're contributing some really great content. I mean, I, I learn a lot every episode that I listen to Saving Elephants. Uh, I'm fascinated by the guests. I learned something new about guests that I've heard on other podcasts. Mm. You know, it's um, you're doing good work, man. So be encouraged about that. But uh, one other thing I'll, I'll say is, is that I had been in the habit of, I had this rule where number one, don't engage with people online with whom I, I don't have a relationship, an existing relationship. Because then it is just be sort of contentious. It's like, I'm going to try to score a point. And I, mm-hmm. I didn't find that productive. There was, however, now doing this platform, sometimes folks are reaching out to me that I don't know. And I, I think it is part of my responsibility to engage. Hopefully, you know, though, the what, what we're trying to build here attracts the kinds of folks that I might have an interesting conversation with. But there was somebody who uh, didn't even, she, she saw that we had Joe Walsh, the uh, the former congressman from, uh, he he was like part of the Tea Party wave. Mm-hmm. And uh, did I'm sure she didn't listen to the actual conversation. She just saw the name Joe Walsh. And she said something about that. He, he had this irresponsible tweet uh, leading up to 2016 election. He was pro-Trump in, in that election. Uh, he said uh, something about grabbing the muskets. 
And uh, I actually talked to him. We had him on the program. We and I asked him about that. He, yeah, that was dumb. And I'm sure if you dug through my ninety thousand tweets, you could find any number of them that were just dumb and irresponsible. And I just like the fact that he took ownership of it, and mm-hmm. you know that he's changed course and he's really trying to be part of a solution now. Uh, well, this person was commenting on it was the YouTube version of of the uh, the pod, and she went within two comments. She went from terrible thing that he said to Nazis and child rapists. <laughs> I'm like, okay, where, where am I getting Like, this is not going anywhere good. I decided to, a, a lot of times I'll take a comment down because I'm like, this is unfounded. It, it's uninformed. And I think it's doing more harm than good. So I will curate the comments that we leave up. I want stuff that's reflective of what we're trying to do. I left that one up because I, um, I, I was trying to make the, the case that we're not lacking for vitriol. We're not lacking for hyperbole. We are lacking for grace. And for someone like, like Joe Walsh, who's, who's, you know, sacrificed a lot, the dude's lost a lot because he stood on principle at a certain point and now is trying, he's trying to recognize faults of his from the past. And he's trying to do, you know, good work in the present and at great cost to himself. And I, I really appreciate, appreciate guys, guys like that. So, that's a that's a series of comments uh, and exchange that I left up because I knew that I think your name was Trixie something. Uh, I, I knew that I wasn't convincing Trixie of anything because she was getting darker and darker. But right. I thought if anybody's reading this, if anybody else is reading this thread, I thought she was illustrating. She was a good illustration of exactly that level of hyperbole, that exactly that level of vitriol that we're trying to cure ourselves of. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No. All right. Mm-hmm. So I, I've kept you longer than I, I, I told you I would. Uh, so I'll, I'll get real quick here to uh, one of my last questions. Do you have any questions for me? Well, I, I do. But it is admittedly completely out of left field from what we've been talking about this entire conversation. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. Let me let me toss it your way. And if, if you uh, don't want to chew on it, rather me uh, 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 take another go at it, we, we can do that. You talk often on your podcast about your conversion, Jew from Jersey, as you say, yeah, conversion to Christianity. And you may have covered this, and maybe I just haven't, I haven't heard it in some of your previous shows. But you talk about this journey you were on in which you began to delve into uh, Christian teaching and arguments and apologetics, and then eventually get around to reading the New Testament. And because of your Orthodox Jewish faith, recognized the intertwining of that and Christianity and essentially became convinced this Jesus fellow is the Christ. Yeah. What I'm curious about is from your position, since you obviously are well-versed in both Jewish culture and Christianity, why do you think it is that more Jews don't take that same path? Because, you know, I, I grew up in a in a Christian tradition, we're always taught, well, this is this is what God intended all along. And if that's true, why would, and I know the scripture talks about this, about Israel having, uh, uh, being blind. I'm saying, I, I know there's sometimes some spiritual reality to this, but is, is it just a matter of being complicated? Is it a matter of, you mentioned you hadn't even picked up a New Testament until years later. Is it culturally kind of, you don't read the Bible? Or is it that even if you did, 
you wouldn't necessarily recognize the truth contained therein. Why, why do you think it is that you were you were such a, a rarity in that sense? Well, we, we could get into the spiritual realm and 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 say that maybe there's a spiritual warfare taking place, but I, I think that's too esoteric to get into for the purposes of this conversation. I do think that in recent history and over the course of, of many centuries, there is something that has built up over the years, uh, what Yoder would refer to as the Jewish Christian schism. And you could trace it back at least as far back as, as Constantine. Uh, but even in my, you know, my parents' lifetime and my grandparents' lifetime, it was often, the Jews have suffered murder and rape, the burning of our villages, the pogroms, the Holocaust. And it was often the men who were wearing crosses on their chests, mm. crosses on their helmets, crosses on their uniforms that were perpetrating such atrocities. So we have this aversion, this allergy uh, to Christianity, because it, whether it's right or wrong, we associate those atrocities with Christendom and Christianity more generally. You know, and then in more recent history, in the latter half of the 20th century, certain types of persecution would show up with the language of Christianity as part of the weaponry. You know, so I think I had that built in to my cultural DNA that I had an aversion, a natural inclination to to think it was stupid, that it's it, it should be dismissed out of hand, uh, that there are these things that just don't make sense and only silly, foolish people, ignorant people believe that stuff. So that was that's part of it. It's also an aversion to proselytization. You know, we in, in Judaism, we have we have something uh, like Chabad, so it, which is proselytizing, but it's only proselytizing to other Jews, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So I think, I think we're, we see a direct line between the level of proselytization that happens in evangelicalism to something that's more colonial in nature or empirical uh, or, or a building of empire that, you know, that, 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 that smells like danger. To, to us. So it must be avoided. But you know, when I did finally crack open the New Testament, it was especially those conversations that Jesus was having, not necessarily with the Sadducees or the priests, but with the Pharisees, I found most fascinating. Because to some who grew up in evangelical churches or, or you know, American Christian Christianity, uh, you know, Matthew 23 can be pretty, you know, it, it's pretty stark. But what I recognized was Jesus was having very Talmudic conversations. The, mm. the, the, the arguments that took place that are recorded in the Talmud, it, they get heated, not just in the moment, but across generations. They get super, super heated. And, and I, that's what I recognized. So not so coincidentally, uh, this, this scholar uh, that, that I, I studied some of his material who he also came to the same who he had this thought experiment who of all the different groups at that time who might jesus have identified with most closely as the essenes or the zealots or you know and he came to the conclusion that it was the pharisees the guys who were having these arguments in public that later were written down 
and, and uh, became became what we now know as, as the Talmud. Uh, so it, it, I thought it was, and he's a Christian Christian scholar. I thought it was a really interesting thought experiment. But I don't know if that answers your question. But that's that's what comes to mind. It 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 does. I mean, it, it's like a lot of the questions we've had tonight. We could go on for about an hour about it. But <laughs> um, but no, that doesn't. That's very interesting. That's that's uh, you give me a lot to chew on, and I appreciate that. Oh, good, good. So how can we find you and Saving Elephants online? Yeah, and until I can outcompete the people trying to save actual elephants, you'll have to find me at <laughs> savingelephantsblog.com. Okay. But the podcast is just Saving Elephants. If you put in Saving Elephants Josh or Saving Elephants Conservative, you can probably pull me up. Yeah, Saving Elephants Blog, uh, savingelephantsblog.com. Terrific. That's really good stuff. If, if you're if you're a nerd for this stuff like me, uh, whether you're right of center, left of center, even you know pretty far left, I, I think you'll find you'll find it. You'll find a lot of the guests really interesting. You'll find a lot of the conversations really um, erudite and and informative and and in, in a in a nerdy way, if I can say that. Uh, really fun, actually. Um, yeah, I, I fully embrace that. If I can embrace that mantle, I, I would consider it an honor. So, yeah. So nerdy in all the best ways. So as a, thanks, thanks for coming in, man. This has been a, a really fun conversation, and and I didn't disappoint. I, I knew you wouldn't because I've I've listened to enough of your material to know that you wouldn't. But uh, I, I really I learned a lot today and had fun hanging out with you and, and getting to know you better. Well, it's very kind of you to say, Corey. Thanks. I enjoyed it. You bet. You bet. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcast and tell a friend. Have you told a friend yet? Tell a friend about TPNR and Saving Elephants. Uh, we're easier to recommend than ever. It's politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us. And you can even support our program through the Patreon app on our site. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D. Politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at TP and R pod. You know, TP and R pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. Tikkun Olam.